This episode of Batman Nightcast is dedicated to the memory of Adam West. As children, he taught us what it meant to be a hero. As adults, he reminded us not to take ourselves too seriously. His bat signal no longer shines in this world, but his daring do remains forever in our hearts and minds. Same bat time, same bat channel. Welcome to episode 14 of Batman Nightcast, a podcast chronicling the comic book adventures of the Cape Crusader in the post-Crisis on Infinite Earths era. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And this time we are covering Batman, issue 407, the final chapter in the landmark story Batman Year One. Or, as some people think of it, the last good Frank Miller Batman story. <laughs> That's my hot take. That's probably not controversial at all. I don't think so, no. <laughs> uh, I don't have anything else to prologue about. I just want to dive right into the Spinner Rack segment because there is a lot of books that I want to talk about this month. How does that sound to you? That sounds great. Let's go. All right. The issue that we are covering this episode, Batman 407, had a cover date of May 1987. What other notable books came out that month? Well, from DC Comics, we have another Detective Comics issue 574 that we're going to talk about on the next episode. We also had something that might be near and dear to one of our Fire and Water cohorts, the Irredeemable Shag. Justice League issue 1 came out this month. Mm. You ever read that one? <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Shag made me read it just to be on that episode. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, this was this was a big deal. I mean, think about it. I mean, this was the first Justice League number one since, what, 1960? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nowadays it's like, you know, every other month there's a Justice League number one of some kind, right? Right, right, but, right. You know, this is <laughs> 27 years later, here's Justice League number one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. wow. And uh, coinciding with that one, we also had something else sort of topical and recent. Suicide Squad issue one came out the same month, as well as its kind of tie-in, Secret Origins issue 14, which told the origins of kind of the past versions of the Suicide Squad, and also Amanda Waller, the brand new character, kind of established in the Legends crossover and in Suicide Squad. So that was a cool, you know, little one-two punch, if you like the Suicide Squad. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is... uh... This is a, you know, post-Legends. Legends is over, as we said last time. This is really the true start of the post-crisis DC universe in a lot of ways right here. Because you're getting a lot of new titles and establishing kind of a new feel for this new DC universe. Yeah, really. I mean, between those two things, I mean, Justice League, which will become Justice League International, and Suicide Squad, the sort of team books that kind of defined this era. And they're coming out at the same time that Batman Year One is ending. And by the next month, we're going to get the new version of Jason Todd and everything. So it's really 
really, I mean, as much as, you know, Crisis has been over for a year now, it kind of feels like this is where it's really finding its identity, what DC Comics is, or the DC Universe is, after the Crisis. It feels like this is kind of where the pieces are really in place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something else that I, I enjoyed, sort of, even though they're kind of weird, Action Comics 588, which is tied into Hawkman issue 10. This was the story where Hawkman had been having a year-long saga that they decided to put the climactic chapter in a Superman book. <laughs> Probably to bolster sales and give John Byrne something else to focus on. Um the Hawkman run was weird. Tony Isabella had been writing Hawkman. He started with a four-issue Shadow War miniseries, then continued that series into a special and then the ongoing series. But he was either removed from the book or left it of his own recognizance on issue nine. And then ten came out with a fill-in, and then the you know climactic chapter was given to John Byrne. And then Dan Michigan and Barbara Kessel wrapped up the story in Hawkman 10. So it was yeah. so weird thing that uh, even though I liked what he was doing, it did feel like he was just kind of like spinning his wheels, like they needed to do something to wrap up the story he was trying to tell. Uh, and maybe he didn't like that, so he left, or they took him off. I don't know. Well, funny you should mention that, because back issue number 97 has come out. It's the Bird People issue. Hey! It's got Haw- <laughs> Yay! It's got Hawkman on the cover, and it's got an article that covers that, written by our pal, Doug Zavisha. Nice. Very cool. So, I'm not going to tell you what's in this article, because it will explain every question you just asked about. Go buy this article and help support our buddy Doug. I definitely will. I was looking to, I was looking forward to buying the magazine anyway, um, and you just reminded me that, hey, <laughs> those questions probably taken care of by Doug in that article. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> good, good fan of the show, Doug, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that. So, uh, what else? What other things came out this month from DC? Well, uh, finally, at long last, the Brother Blood saga ended in New <laughs> Teen Titans number 31. But no one noticed because everyone had quit reading the book by that point. <laughs> Batman and Robin do appear in that issue, though. So there you go. <laughs> I was going to say how the mighty, not necessarily fallen, but how the mighty, you know, just kind of like stumbled and tripped and kind of clumsily fell down the stairs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, you know, this is definitely during a very, this isn't a period of the new Teen Titans that anybody's, you know, particularly crazy about, even though they had really nice art by Eduardo Barreto. But this is Marvin, his writer's block phase, his famous writer's block phase that he mentions in every interview he's ever given. So. Uh, something else that came out this month, The Spectre Issue 2. Uh, and I mention this because the cover features very prominently Madame Xanadu. So, of course, that cover is drawn by Michael Kaluta, who we talked about with the anniversary issue of Detective Comics. And he did all of the Doorway to Nightmare covers when uh, Madame Xanadu was first uh, appearing. And a little program note, the next episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour that comes out, which maybe before this episode comes out or maybe after, I don't know. Depends on how quickly I can turn it around. Um, but the next episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour should feature me and Greg Arujo talking about Madame Xanadu's first appearance in Doorway to Nightmare issue one so mm, yeah. very interesting uh also well, calling back i'm sorry i, oh. I was going to mention calling back to um the detective issue that kaluta drew the cover of we've got from renegade press you've got the cases of sherlock holmes mm. uh you've got the issue number six and then you have muppet babies number 13 <laughs> 
<laughs> which features Kermit as Sherlock Holmes on the cover, blowing bubbles out of a bubble pipe. Nice. And that's from Marvel Star Comics line. So. <laughs> Very, very cool. And they both operate out of 2218 Baker Street. <laughs> <laughs> just keep, just pick that up and run with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to own it. That way nobody can like keep picking on me about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the two other things from DC that I just wanted to mention really quick. Another one that's near and dear to my heart. The Zatanna special, number one. Zatanna finally got, this is, I think, the first time she had her own self-titled comic. Uh, of course, she would get a miniseries a few years later in the early 90s. Uh, but Zatanna Special, it's her first post-crisis appearance. Uh, it ties up her stories from Supergirl backups and her early appearances as a member of the Justice League. Uh, but her status would very quickly be altered or even ignored in the coming years by the Secret Origin story uh, in her 90s miniseries. Uh, I really like this special because the art is by Gray Morrow, who did amazing work with Zatanna in some of those Supergirl backups. At some point, I will cover that story on Power of Fishnets. Uh, looking forward to getting to that eventually. Uh, and the other one from DC, and I don't know what this story is. I just kind of glanced at it and it like pinged on my radar. DC Science Fiction Graphic Novel Number Seven. It is an adaptation of a George R. R. Martin story. Now, most people know George R. R. Martin as the author of the Game of Thrones series. Uh, the series of novels and now the hit HBO show based on that. Uh, but yeah, he had some stories like way back in the 80s that Marvel adapted for this science fiction graphic novel series. And it, the script was by Doug Munch and the art was by Pat Broderick. So wow. those guys doing uh, a George R. R. Martin story, I don't know what it is, but I'm interested in it if I ever see that, if I can find that. I might have to check that out. Yeah, DC had a. I mean, you know that I I never bought any of them because that was I didn't have any access to them. But I remember them advertising the the science fiction graphic novel series that they had. I remember they had Demon with a Glass Hand, the Harlan Ellison, and, and things like that. I never see those pop up anywhere. I mean, in the wild, you never yeah. run into them. I don't know if they had like low print runs. I mean, I have no idea, but it's I, I don't know if I've ever run into any of them out and about, you know, over the years. Maybe at Comic Cons, they've been like, you know, on a shelf toward yeah. the back of a booth or something. But I mean, as far as like really coming across them and, and like holding one in my hand, that's never happened. It seems like the kind of thing that would be would go for like a specialty market, like not even like. I don't even know if it would be on like a newsstand thing or if it would be some other kind of like direct market sales or something for a a different venue. I I have no idea, but it just seems like it might be something that you wouldn't find on the shelf with your normal Batman and Justice League comics anyway. But I I could be way off base that. Before we leave DC, we'd be lax if we didn't mention that Shazam, the new beginning, (laughs) number two, came out this month. <laughs> Thank you for that. I can't imagine why I didn't include that in my notes. <laughs> and on the cover, we get Black Adam. This is the introduction of the post-crisis Black Adam and little Jeff Johns, you know, wet his pants when he saw Black Adam, probably. So there you go. <laughs> so much so that he just had to turn him into Namor. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, moving over to Marvel Comics. I never thought about this until now, but looking at them in the same month, the cover to Avengers 276 
It's six heroes of the Avengers. It's like Captain America, four with the beard, the Monica Rambeau, Captain Marvel, I think the Druid or something like that. And it's them against a white background just standing together. Mm. It reminds me a lot of the cover of Justice League number one, and they came out the same month. Now, the difference is the camera positioning. The cover to Avengers is more of like a straight up, like a normal kind of portrait that you would see just like looking straight ahead at them. Whereas what McGuire did so amazingly that it's been homaged to death, even by himself, um, but other people with for Justice League was that great tilting the camera down, having a slightly mm-hmm. overhead shot that gives you more of the team that can go farther deeper back and show you more of their bodies, which is amazing. But I just thought it was like, wow, both of these covers have the fo- that team standing together in the, kind of the same position with a white background, except yeah. it's just a different position. I was like, that was weird. That, I, like, I can't imagine they were coordinated, but it's just a funny <laughs> bit of synchronicity, so... Yeah, it's kind of. I didn't even notice that, and I, I wrote down a note about this. But it's that 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 is odd that that came out the same month. Good call. I did note that it says who will lead the Avengers. I vote for Doctor Druid, <laughs> <laughs> not Captain America, but Doctor Druid. <laughs> when he makes his Marvel Cinematic Universe debut, whew. watch out now. He's gonna he's gonna be the hero at the end of Infinity War that defeats Thanos. <laughs> Men, cover your wives or your girlfriend's eyes because they will not. <laughs> I'm not even going to finish that stupid sentence. <laughs> uh, something else that came out this month, Conan Saga number one. It reprints the first three issues of Conan the Barbarian by Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith. I love that series from what uh, I've read about 20 issues of it. And the reason I really put this, there were also three other Conan books published by Marvel that month. Wow. Uh, and just yesterday, uh, I went shopping and I found kind of a a used toy store that that also has like some comic collections. I've actually gotten a lot of good like old horror comics like for my midnight the podcasting hour at this place. Uh, they've got a decent selection, but they do have like a lot of like used toys and like old kind of like hobby toys and stuff like that. But I found they had a stack. Like they were so jumbled and so out of order, but it wouldn't surprise me if they had like 150 issues of the Conan the Barbarian or Savage Sword of Conan magazines. Mm. And I was like, oh man, that would be a fun rabbit hole to, to dive into and start collecting those. Except like just looking at the price tags, I was like, oh, I don't want to spend seven or eight hundred dollars on this hobby right now. <laughs> and that's obviously not for one, but like they had so many of them, and a lot of them were listed at you know five or six dollars, and those were the ones numbered in the hundreds. So you know, going back even earlier than that, I have no idea what they would have run, but. Ah, uh, yeah, those look so good. And again, it reminds me of the the power records that you did with Rob on those Conan stories that I just love so much. You know, it's he me. talked about he yeah. had to hide those magazines if he bought them <laughs> yeah. because they always had some scantily clad woman, you know, in a in a fur bikini on the cover, you know, and his his mom wouldn't have approved. <laughs> It's funny, like, I, I didn't grow up loving Conan. Like, I, he just really, I knew who he was. I'd seen the movies when I was probably way too young. Um, yeah. But it just, it wasn't really my thing. Like, but just recently, over the last three or four years, uh, I've read some of his, I was like, oh man, I'm kind of digging this a lot more. I was actually liking the, the current Dark Horse Conan series for a little while. That was pretty good. But 
Uh, still from Marvel, G.I. Joe issue 59 and G.I. Joe Order of Battle number 4. Now, the Order of Battle was their encyclopedia book, very much like the Ohatmu series. Issue 4 was the last part of the series, and it focused on their vehicles and bases rather than characters, because G.I. Mm-hmm. Joe had so many of those that they needed to organize them. So, you know, you could see, you know, Sergeant Slaughter's Triple T tank in the Order of Battle or whatever. <laughs> um, but what I remembered about issue 59 of the main book is that it introduced, and it might have been the only classic appearance of the character called Raptor. And that yes. was the character who dressed like a bird. I love that action figure. That was, so, <laughs> yeah, so do I. That was the, that was like the last series of G.I. Joe figures I bought to play with. And I realized that he was completely ridiculous, but he was a cool – I mean, I think I pretty much like drafted him in, as a superhero into my superpowers play, you know, because he, he was a little short, but I was like, I don't care. You exactly. know, he just had – he had that Birdman look about him, you know, <laughs> just Hawkman, Birdman, and Blue Falcon, you name it, Bird Guy. He should have been in the back issue I was talking about. <laughs> yes. And it's got the Cobra Pogo thing. What was that thing called? The oh, uh, Pogo Pod, wasn't that? Pogo Pod, yeah, something, something like that. Yeah, the GI Joe fans were screaming at us, but yeah. I, I am convinced that that wave that was the nineteen eighty five six, no eighty seven. Seven. That was the yeah. nineteen eighty seven wave of action figures. Part of me is convinced that uh, that the Hasbro was trying to tap into like their superpowers market or like all of the Cobra villains that year could have been rejects from superpowers or something yeah. like that. Like if you look like way, what Cobra began as in the beginning and what they became in 1987, like the main Cobra figures, cause I, I like studied this cause I was trying to make my case. You had Cobra commander in his silver armor battle suit. Mm-hmm. Unlike any Cobra Commander before that, you had a Raptor mm-hmm. guy dressed like a bird with a wing suit and a, a wing hood. Croc Master has like a crocodile hide and a like control, and he looks like Bane, and he's got a pet yep. crocodile. Mm-hmm. Big Boa, who's their like boxer guy, but he's basically like shirtless, but with these like two like kind of like straps around his chest with spikes and this crazy helmet. Yeah, he looks like he looks like the persuader from the Legion of Supervillains. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> or Fatal Five, the Fatal Five. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Crystal Ball, who looks like Dracula, and yeah. his, or Doctor uh, Strange. Right, right. He looks like that. And whose file card is maybe uh, written by Stephen King is sort of the rumor because one of Stephen King's, like, I think, his son or something was working for Hasbro at the time, or just liked the like the toys. He might have been too young to be working there, um, but like liked the toys or whatever. So there's uh, weird Stephen. King connection there? I, I don't know. And then that that was also the year that had the movie and the release of the Cobra La villains, which oh, were, is basically like what happens if you know H.P. Lovecraft brought his Cthulhu universe to the G.I. Joe world. <laughs> so, uh, Cobra Commander with a bunch of eyeballs and then yeah. turns into a snake and just, oh my god. I, I, I think we've talked about this before, but I love, 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 love the opening of that movie, and I know you do too. Oh yeah. But the rest of that movie, I just, I mean, I even as a kid, I like, I reject this from my continuity <laughs> like instantly. This did not happen. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the same thing. I'm like, this is like a silly Elseworlds thing. This isn't like real G.I. Joe. But there are a lot of really cool singular moments in it that I love that I kind of, I, I still give it a pass. And yeah, the opening theme song and animation is like, maybe like the best four minutes of animation ever, like in my mind. <laughs> so, right, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's stirring. Like the song is great. The, the action kicks ass. So, 
yeah. But anyway, yeah, I am, I am convinced that basically Hasbro was running out of ideas or plain military action was kind of failing them. They weren't, you know, we were, you know, the Cold War was pretty much over, like the, the, the normal military thing. So they basically turned G.I. Joe into fighting supervillains, which is what that yeah. year really felt like they were doing. Yeah. Uh, there's only other one other comic that came out that month that I wanted to mention on this segment, and it, it is all for our friends Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Dark Horse Comics produced the first issue of Trekker. Oh, that came out that month. So uh, Ron Randall's Trekker that the Sutherlands cover on their Trekker Talk podcast. So hi, <laughs> hi Darren and Ruth. So hope you enjoyed that. Well, one. she uh, Mercy St. Clair was also in, and I think I said her name right. Was also in uh, Dark Horse Presents number five, which also had Concrete in it. I, and I, I believe she debuted in Dark Horse Presents a few issues back, and we should have caught that when we were yeah. talking about them. But but yeah, so uh, yeah, big big times for uh, Trekker Talk fans out there. Yeah. Anything else we need to mention? Ah, uh, I think that's pretty much it. All right, folks, we are going to take a short promotional break right now. When we return, Batman Year One reaches its earth-shattering conclusion, and I learn what hyperbole means. Don't go away. <laughs> Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mister Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Batman 407 is cover dated May 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World, it actually hit the shelves on February 12th, which was Abraham Lincoln's 178th birthday. The cover, as usual, is drawn by David Mazzuccelli. It's a black and white or grayscale image showing Batman dropping out of the shadows in front of Jim Gordon, who draws his gun on the vigilante. What do you think of this cover? Oh, it's, you know, it's it's another one of those cases of just the incredible, powerful simplicity of Mazzuccelli. I mean, the inside of Batman's cape is nothing but negative space. <laughs> and, you know, and I never even noticed Batman's eyes on the actual cover. They're not white. They're like a light gray. <laughs> and then the, you know, these are things I didn't notice until like looking closely at this cover. But the you know we've got the white bat i knew that but there's a magenta outline around the batman title around the words the word batman yep i don't even know if that should work but it does i mean <laughs> it's you know it's as a graphic designer i'm like should that work i i did i mean it, you know it's you know when i looked at this it popped in my head have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight it just <laughs> A few years early, but it just it almost seems like they're doing some kind of strange interpretive dance, you know, <laughs> on, the, yeah. on the cover, you know. Uh, but it's it sums up this series, probably this actual series, better than probably any other image because, you know, Gordon's actually on the cover. Mm-hmm. He's just as prominent as Batman. And as we said, they're they're co-protagonists in this story. So. Right. 
I think this is my least favorite of the four-year one covers, but that's not to say it's bad. It's just, I mean, these are four knockout covers. One of them has to be the least. I think this one is my least favorite. And honestly, I think part of what I don't like about it is the title logo, the coloring, the fact that it is white on the white bat background, but it has, like, the weird magenta thing. I Not bad, not horrible. It doesn't, like, fail, but I think it could have been better. There could have been something else to it. Gordon looks pretty cool, although I... I don't know. There's something about him that I don't want to say rushed, but something. But I do love the look of Batman. Uh, all of the black in the costume, except for his gloves, are bleeding and basically becoming what you said negative space on the cover. Yeah, it's it's a good cover. It's not my favorite. I think of the four, I would rank this one the lowest. In fact, I, I probably like them in the order that they came out. <laughs> I think I think four yeah. or four is the best, then four or five, then four or six, then this one. So yeah, probably so. Yeah, me too. Probably. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I really it, it probably is the lesser of the four, but I, I kind of. In a lot of ways, it's the most Mazzuchelli of the four, and in, in some ways, because it is it is using his his mastery of blacks and and a few lines and negative space and to create an image that's like basically tricking your eye into seeing something, you know. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, so, so in a lot of ways, it's uh, more symbolic of the the entire series, and plus because Gordon's on the cover, so. Friend in Need is written by Frank Miller, drawn by Mazzuchelli, lettered by Todd Klein, colored by Richmond Lewis, and edited by Denny O'Neill. On September 2nd, Jim Gordon and Sarah Essen meet at their usual coffee spot. Sarah is regretting their tryst. She tries to return a bracelet he gave her as a gift, but he refuses to take it back. She wonders if Gordon's wife, Barbara, weren't pregnant, but she leaves that question unfinished, knowing it isn't fair. By September 7th, Sarah has requested a transfer out of Gotham City, the only way she can sever her relationship with Gordon, who confesses in his narration that he is in love with her. Meanwhile, the news reports on Gordon's arrest of known drug dealer Jefferson Skeevers. On September 10th, a judge lets Skeevers out on bail, a decision that goes uncontested by Assistant District Attorney Harvey Dent. Gordon demands to know why the ADA didn't put up a fight, but Dent brushes him off. The next night, Batman clings to the side of a building spying on the newly released Skeevers and his lawyer. She complains that snorting coke probably isn't the best idea for a guy about to go to trial on drug charges. But Skeevers feels untouchable. The cops won't let him rot in jail because he's got dirt on Detective Flass, who in turn has dirt on Commissioner Loeb. The lawyer points out that there might be just enough dirt that the cops will kill Skeevers to silence him. Then she leaves. Cue Batman crashing through the window and grabbing Skeevers. September 12th, Jefferson Skeevers walks into Gordon's office to talk a plea deal in exchange for turning over evidence against Flass. 
The day after, Commissioner Loeb calls Gordon into his office to express his displeasure that his pet flask was publicly implicated in Skeever's drug operation. This time, it's Gordon who feels untouchable, because he's got the press and the public on his side. But just as the Batman proved how vulnerable Skeever's actually was, the Commissioner and his new lackey, Brandon, have evidence of Gordon's compromised position, photographs of Gordon kissing Sarah Essen. The Commissioner leans on Gordon to renew his investigation into the Batman. So, on September 25th, Gordon finally arranges a meeting with Bruce Wayne, the suspect that Sarah came up with way back on June 6th that year. Gordon brings Barbara to his meeting with Bruce, since she's gone past her due date and could go into labor at any time. After previously claiming to be out of the country or sick with the flu, Bruce finally welcomes the Gordons into his cavernous manor. Barbara is not impressed by his demeanor. Bruce appears to be hungover, having spent the night drinking with a foreign supermodel who doesn't speak English. When they leave, Barbara tells Gordon that Bruce is a pig. Gordon acknowledges that that is certainly how Bruce acted, and perhaps recent events have given Gordon a greater understanding of what people are capable of doing to preserve their secrets. He stops the car, and there in the shadow of Wayne Manor, he tells his wife that he's been cheating on her. Back in the house, meanwhile, Bruce Wayne watches the Gordons sit in their car for ten minutes before driving off, never knowing what they might be talking about. Alfred compliments Bruce's performance and cleans up the bottles of club soda disguised to look like champagne. With the threat of blackmail lifted, Gordon continues his investigation of Detective Flass, interrogating him with his lawyer on October 2nd. On October 5th, someone calls Barbara Gordon to tell her about her husband's affair, but that bomb has already been defused. On October 7th, someone poisons Skeevers with his food, but Sergeant Merkel gets him to the hospital on time. Despite this attempt on his life, Skeevers is still willing to testify, as he is far more afraid of the Batman than the crooked cops trying to kill him in jail. October 12th, James Gordon Jr. is born. That same night, Selina Kyle commits her fourth costumed cat burglary, this time stealing Commissioner Loeb's pop memorabilia collection, valued at $40,000. But when she brings the loot back to Holly and their cat-infested apartment, Selina doesn't know how to fence vintage toys. The news, however, blames the string of burglaries on the Batman. Selina decides to rob Carmine the Roman Falcone, and this time, she'll leave a scratch on his face so the world will know she's not Batman. On November 2nd, the Batman takes flight, literally, with his new glider made of ultralight plastics developed by Wayne Industries. He soars over the Gotham skyline, finally landing on Falcone's building, the roof of which is designed to look like a Roman temple. Batman overhears the Roman talking to his nephew, Johnny Vitti, who was sent by his mother from Chicago to kill the Roman's enemies. Their talk is interrupted when the Roman's bodyguards are attacked by Catwoman. The other goons are about to kill her when the Roman, seeing her cat-like costume and assuming she's in league with the Batman, tells them he wants her alive. Unfortunately for them, the Batman knocks the Roman, Johnny, and his remaining guards unconscious with tranquilizer-tipped batterings. Batman leaves, disgruntled that Catwoman ruined his night's work. Alone on the roof with a bunch of knocked-out mobsters, Catwoman gives Carmine Falcone the scratch she intended, a scratch that will provide fodder for about 32 future comics by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. As the sun is barely rising on November 3rd, Bruce tries to make the best of a bad situation. He knows the Roman is using his nephew Johnny to do something that isn't as public as murder. Meanwhile, Alfred not so subtly criticizes Bruce's actions as paranoid and insane. Falcone, whose face is half-covered in bandages, summons Johnny to his bedside and names the target. Across town, Gordon wakes up to feed his crying son. While he's waiting for the bottle to warm, the phone rings. Commissioner Loeb asks Gordon to come to the station on some menial errand.
As Gordon leaves his apartment that morning, a motorcyclist clad all in black narrowly clips his car and races into the same parking garage that Gordon just left. Gordon is struck by a terrible thought. The commissioner's call was a ploy to get Gordon away from his family. He runs back into the apartment and hears James Jr. crying in the garage. Johnny Vitti sits in the back of the car, holding the newborn baby in one hand and a switchblade in the other. His goons drag Barbara to the car as she calls to her husband for help. Johnny tells Gordon to go to the office and wait for their call. Gordon knows that if he lets them drive off with his wife and son, he'll never see them alive again. He shoots and kills one of the men holding Barbara. She drops to the ground, clearing his line of fire. The other man fires back, hitting Gordon in the arm. Gordon fires and kills the second man as the car with Johnny and James Jr. speeds out of the garage. Gordon shoots at the car, but it drives away. He hears the motorcycle revving behind him, turns, and shoots the black-clad driver. He takes the motorcycle and races off in pursuit of his son, knocking over a bicyclist along the way. Barbara Gordon picks up one of the guns and aims it at the motorcyclist, getting to his feet. He takes off his helmet, and though he's not wearing a mask and his face is in shadow, we can imagine that he speaks with Batman's voice, saying he won't let her baby die. Then, billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne steals some guy's 10-speed and pedals off in the direction of Gordon. Gordon gets close enough to the car to shoot out one of the tires. The driver loses control and the car crashes into the bridge. Gordon dumps the bike and races to the car, praying his son is still alive. He sees the driver dead, but Johnny kicks out the back door, knocking the gun from Gordon's hand and the glasses off his face. Bruce makes it to the bridge, leaps off the bike, and swings from support strut to strut like a gymnast. Johnny, still holding the baby, lunges at Gordon with a knife. They tussle, and baby James goes over the side. Gordon screams as his child falls, while over their heads, Bruce Wayne dives after the baby. Gordon pulls Johnny over the side with him, and all four plummet to the shallow, muddy waters below. Barbara Gordon runs to the side of the bridge. As she reaches the railing, she hears her son crying. Below, Bruce Wayne hands the baby over to Gordon, who stands ankle-deep in mud over the unconscious Johnny. Gordon observes that his son's savior must have been wearing body armor under his biker jacket to save him from the bullet that Gordon fired at him. He also tells the man in black that without his glasses, he can't get a positive ID on his face. As police sirens converge on the bridge, Gordon lets him escape. Over the next couple of weeks, Detective Flass goes to trial and turns over his thoroughly documented evidence of Commissioner Loeb's corruption. Loeb will escape jail time, but is forced to resign. Meanwhile, Carmine Falcone is involved in a crime war with his sister after the Roman tried to have Johnny Vitti killed in the hospital to keep his mouth shut. Sarah Essen transferred to New York. Gordon and Barbara see a marriage counselor to work on their relationship. On December 3rd, Captain Jim Gordon stands on the roof of Gotham Police Headquarters, waiting in the falling snow. A deranged psychopath called the Joker is threatening to poison the city reservoir. Gordon lights a pipe, waiting for his friend, the Batman. End of part four. Get out of my way. All right, Chris, your thoughts on this one? Uh, you know, over, I've always kind of thought this, but doing this show just hammered the question home. Should this ending work? The climax features an antagonist we were just introduced to this issue. The the final big set piece is during the daytime. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, of course, there's no Batman. 
conventional wisdom says Loeb or the Roman should have directly been involved so Batman and or Gordon could smack them around. And then Gordon and, and Batman in costume should have had their confrontation like the cover promises. But for whatever reason, this does work. <laughs> it, it, it shouldn't, but it does. It's completely satisfying. And on my first 100 read-throughs, it never even occurred to me, the, these thoughts. So I don't know if it's because we met Bruce and Gordon together in issue number 404, and it's as simple as that. But it does work. But it is not the it's not the typical template ending that you would expect from a story like this. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I've thought about that. I've asked that question a lot. And when I was a kid, I had a problem with this. Like, when I was a younger reader, I remember thinking, well, Batman isn't really involved in the climax. We don't see him in costume. Like, this is this feels kind of cheap. Like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, and, and this kind of goes to uh, – I mean, this issue has a, a lot of things where I – again, I'm forced to ask the question, like, whose story is this? Is this Batman's story? Is this Gordon's story? Uh, I think this chapter really lends itself more to being Gordon's story. Mm -hmm. And and I think just maybe Miller was just leaning into that entirely by not having Batman in costume in the climactic fight scene. Um, It doesn't bother me, I guess, is what I come down to. Like, I think it's it's still an effective ending for the story. Is it the best possible ending? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I, I would have liked to see him in costume, but... What is he going to do that we didn't already see done in like the last chapter, which was the big action set piece where he's taking out like what else can we see Batman do in this last chapter that like wouldn't that would really impress us? Um, I think this is showing a different aspect that I, I guess and this was going to be the question that I was going to build to, but I think it, we have to just address it right now because it's it's one of those lingering questions that comes up and the story is all about it is does Gordon know that Bruce Wayne is Batman? Mm. And I think this story tries to be ambiguous by putting him in shadows and and Gordon having that kind of too cute line of, you know, without my glasses, I'm pretty much blind. I can't see it. I can't I can't get a positive idea. I can't see your face or whatever. Um, I call BS on that. Um, Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes when I've read this, I have taken him at his word. I've just said, you know what, that that is the truth, Um, because my. My preference for their relationship has always been, kind of in my head canon, is that Gordon could find out who Batman is. He's that good a cop. He could investigate it and he could figure it out. But he doesn't want to. He chooses not to ask the question. Because if he does, if he solves the case, he has to arrest him. Right. If yeah. he never asks the question, he never gets the answer. It's plausible deniability. Yeah. Um, I, I think yeah. I think what we get from this chapter is it's not plausible deniability. It's lying. He's just lying yeah. to himself and he's lying to everybody else. He knows he he can recognize him, and I think I think that is the only really real reason why Miller would cast this scene in the daytime is because Gordon had to be able to see who Batman was and make the decision. I'm going to keep your secret. I'm going to protect your identity and not tell people because this is the yeah. only this is the only occasion where he would be able to see him without his mask. It had to be in the day. I think that's why this scene has it's this scene has to happen in the day for that understanding for for that moment when Gordon sees him and says, "Run! I'm going I'm going to protect you. Run because you say yeah. I know you're a good guy and you saved my infant son." So in that sense, this ending does work, but it mm-hmm. only works if we understand that Gordon really is the hero of the story, or the protagonist, at least. So I, yeah. think, I think this this chapter makes that kind of definitive. 
But there is another aspect of this ending that never occurred to me until I read it this time. I am convinced that Barbara recognized Bruce Wayne too. <laughs> I thought the same thing. And, yeah. and it, it just never occurred to me because he's in shadow. Me but, neither. But she was with Gordon when they went to Wayne Manor. And again, that doesn't make sense. How many cops bring their wives with them when they go to interrogate a suspect or interview a suspect? That doesn't happen. Right. Gordon would know better than that. And like, if he was worried about her going into labor, he would have a police escort with her. He could. He's a lieutenant. He can have you know a, a patrol cop staying with her. But she had to see Bruce Wayne, and then she knows because she pulls a gun on him. And when he stands, even though his face is kind of kind of obscured, it's sort of like ah, we're being cute, we're being ambiguous, we're not showing you the whole thing. He says, "I won't let your son die." The only reason she would let him go is if she recognized. She said, "That's freaking Bruce Wayne." And, and he's oh, Batman. And, yeah, and oh yeah, my husband thought he was Batman a month ago. Right. <laughs> she, she's like, wow. So that's. I think that's the only reason she lets him go. So I think this is actually a secret that both the Gordons know of. Yes, so. I, I agree. I, I was. I come to the same conclusion reading this time too. Um, I, and it had that the part about Barbara had never occurred to me either. Uh, but yeah, I'm, exactly. You know, why would he bring her there to Wayne Manor? And of course, it's kind of poetic that you know. Jim shares his dark secret with Barbara on the grounds of Wayne Manor after they just visited Bruce. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that then, you know, then if you read it the way we're reading it now, that she knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman, you know, yeah. because of why. And like you said, exactly the same thought. Why else would she let this guy take off? You know, uh, because her, her husband had the conviction that this guy was involved and shot him in the chest. Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know, so I mean, you know, and I'm pretty sure she's going to follow her husband's lead since he's a cop and she's not in this. Right. But my take on Gordon from this has always been that, yes, he, you know, and I have kind of, you know, switched back and forth. You know, did he see him? Did did he recognize him or not? I think, again, examining this, like you said, I come to the same conclusion. If because Miller chose to set he he made the choice to set this during the day it was all so you know gordon could know that bruce was batman but not acknowledge that and i have always kind of felt like maybe that that gordon really does know but he just won't let himself completely admit that he knows yeah and that that's kind of my take and also for miller maybe he felt like he had to really set up this trust between them or he felt like the relationship just didn't make any sense in the years ahead yeah that they had to have that moment where you know i saved your son you know who i am and we won't you won't ever tell Right. And that's how that's the foundation of their working relationship for the next decades is he's Commissioner Gordon and Bruce is Batman, right. uh, you know, and, and it's this kind of this unspoken trust. But it had to have for Miller, maybe a more concrete foundation than just, you know, you do you you're a good guy and you do good work and we're both on the right side <laughs> of justice, you know, and, and, you know, so reading it with a podcaster examination these things popped up more than they have before. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, the title of this chapter is Friend in Need, and you yeah. se- get the sense that this is what these two have been running up against the, the for this entire year, is that they can't do it alone. They need help. They need backup. They need a support structure. And these two might be the like the last two righteous people in Gotham City who believe in what they're doing. So they have to come together. But... 
Miller, at least at this point in his career, at least like had a sense of what was dramatic and what was really powerful because he does the same thing that he does in chapter one. Like in chapter one, you could have had the bat fly into the room when Bruce is just having an existential crisis. Uh, and it would have been the same as the pre-crisis version. You know, Bruce isn't sure what to do. Bat flies in the room. Ah, that's my inspiration. I'll become a bat. That's fine. That works. What Miller did was he ratcheted up the tension. He made it not just an existential crisis, but Bruce is bleeding to death. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if I don't have a better way, I'm just going to let myself die because this isn't worth it. I don't, I don't have a plan B in my life. It's literally a life or death situation, and the bat crashes through the window. Miller and Mazzuccelli knew that, okay, we're going to take this situation that isn't broken, but we're going to make it as dramatic as possible. They did that in the first chapter. This time they do the same thing. Yeah, Gordon and Batman, they respect each other from afar. They kind of like, they, they do know that they're both on the right side. They're both on the same side, but their orbits aren't going to connect personally unless they have this moment where they have to trust each other now because mm-hmm. this is as this is as tense and dramatic as they can get batman saved gordon's newborn son from certain death and he hands him back and how does gordon return that favor he keeps his deepest darkest secret the thing that nobody mm-hmm. else can know otherwise it all goes to hell this shared trust now this is what builds their friendship and again, it could have just been that they were good working partners, that they, they believed in each other. No, now it is something intensely personal. Mm-hmm. So, yep. and, and that's one of those things that uh, where I liked when I think like this was Miller really on his game that is really impressive. Like, and again, I don't want to bash like, what he's done in the past where it seems like he's lacking subtlety, but he knew he had an understanding of how to make the good foundation, the, the foundations of Batman that had been around for, at that point, 60 years or something, but just to ramp them up. And yeah, it just, it's, it's constantly impressive what they do with this story. Yes, agreed. <laughs> Uh, okay, so just going through like the the notes that I have, kind of like uh, on a page by page basis. Um, on well, first of all, let's look at the because each each one of these books has a, a little title page. I love this image uh, oh, yeah. on this page one with Batman half in the shadow with like gunshots, but like he's kind of like dancing out of the spotlight. He's darting around it with gunshots, like kind of bouncing off the walls, like pocket. He's like. I like this better than the cover. Now, yeah. uh, now I understand why the cover works because you need Batman and Gordon together on the cover. Like that's that's the, what the story is. But just as a pure image, doing a lot with the same kind of negative space, I like this better. Yeah, this I love this, and this you know, this was actually used on the cover of a book called Batman and Other DC Classics, which was a giveaway comic that promoted DC's collected editions. It came out in 1989, huh. and it's in in color. Yeah, it's it's a little floppy comic, and oddly enough, it's got the it reprints from the greatest Batman stories ever told the origin of Batman from 1948, though the <laughs> one where he captures Joe Chill, oh yeah, uh, or not, he confronts Joe Chill, yeah. It's great to see that as a cover. I mean, it's there's other little vignettes of like New Teen Titans and Camelot 3000 and things on the side, but yep. I always love that image. And it, you know, it, it calls back to that classic image of Batman and Robin in the spotlight with Batman's cape drawn around him, you know, yep. and in front of his face. So yeah, it, it's it's fantastic. And yeah, I kind of wish this had been the. I, I like it better than the cover too, but you know, of course, the cover's got Gordon. It it, it fits the comic better, but this is the better image. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the text piece on the side, he's out to clean up a city that likes being dirty. He can't do it alone. 
what I like about that is that could be told from either perspective. Mm-hmm. You could yeah. say that you could say that's Batman, or you could say it's Gordon, and it works for both. Right. So. What a great tagline for a movie, too. Yeah. Really, really <laughs> uh, so moving on, page two, we get Gordon and or we get Sarah trying to break up with Gordon the first time. But what I noted on this one. Uh, the bottom right, the panels, we get Miller's famous talking heads. <laughs> this is yes. something that he did so much in The Dark Knight Returns, is we got the news talking heads with the news anchors or broadcasters uh, and their dialogue just as a separate balloon or caption above them. Uh, I was trying to remember if they, that happened anywhere earlier in the story. and I, um, Maybe in the fr- maybe when Bruce and... Oh, okay. Very when Bruce Wayne first arrives in Gotham, they do a yes. sort of thing with the TV uh, anchors, like talking. Okay, so there is a little bit of that, but it's really it's it becomes more more popular in this issue. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, I recognize it. this is definitely a Frank Miller story. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's Miller's subtle way of you know we're moving toward. I mean, it's obviously a way off, but we're we're yeah. we're now in the final chapter, so we're getting closer to the Dark Knight, and that's that was a major device that he used in the Dark Knight, so. Yeah. You know, maybe that was his little subtle nod to that, that he uses it more in this chapter. And also just might have been, hey, I want to do that this issue. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting. We're back in the same diner that they were at before Hopper's, which is, you know, a nod to uh, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks painting. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, they're in that same position again. And uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's almost it's kind of weird because. As you read it, you know, you've got page two where they're, you know, Gordon's like, it's, it's the, it's the right thing to do. It's the only thing to do. And they're, they're essentially ending their relationship and she's trying to give him back the, the bracelet. And of course, then that, you know, that Gordon like went out and bought her a bracelet. I mean, that's even worse than like, you know, they're in the same room and the sexual tension's just so high. They just can't keep their hands off one another. He like probably when he wasn't around her went out and bought her a bracelet while his pregnant wife's at home. I mean, it's like, oh, dude, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's why when uh, when the question came up last time during the feedback with Martin Gray saying, you know, he like it doesn't matter if they actually were sleeping together. Like, he fell in love with another woman. He's cheating on Barbara. Right. Um, I was going to say, it's, it's you know, I was, my point I was originally going to make was, and I got off it myself, you know, they're breaking up on page two, but then the top panel on page three, they're they're kissing in his office again. It's yeah. like they literally can't keep their hands off one another. You know, I mean, there's just such an attraction right. and it, it almost seems like these pages should be flipped. But no, that's the whole point that, you know, they're saying it's over. We got to end this. And before she can get out of town, they've still they're still going at it, yep. you know, yep. and it didn't. I don't know if I'd ever noticed it before, but there's the picture of Barbara on Gordon's desk. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh my, that poor, the poor woman, my God, what this woman goes through in this series. I know, I know. Jeez. Um, But it's a great image. I mean, you see the file cabinet open. Like, obviously they got like so caught up that they just dropped a file and the papers are spilling all over. And it's, this is why she has to leave. Why she like requests, because obviously they can't be in the room with each other without, you know, making out or going at it or something like that. Like this is, it's going to cost them more than America is going to cost them their jobs if they don't stop this. Yeah. Um, so she and, and her asking him about, you know, if your right. wife weren't pregnant. Oh man, yeah. geez. This is this is mature comics mm-hmm. right here. This mm-hmm. this is this isn't, you know, blood, guns and boobies. Right. This is <laughs> this is mature reader stuff right here. <laughs> right. This is adult conversations, real relationships where breakups are rarely clean um mm-hmm. and where love isn't flowery. Love makes you do cruel things at times. Mm-hmm. 
it can be tough. So it's yeah, this is definitely. Uh, it pings on my radar like September 11th is when Batman yeah. takes down Skeevers and I don't think I even put it in my uh, synopsis I think I just said the next night uh, because we've got uh, September 10th and, and yeah and talking about like a real mature like the next one we see Skeevers on you know the next page just like snorting coke his <laughs> lawyer telling him to wear a nice suit not dressing like a pimp yeah whoo Okay. <laughs> it's bad enough you're black, she says. Yes. I mean, the whole wow, you know, it's, it's like, like just... and I mean, it's it, it's so, I mean, on panel in a 1987 comic book that you see a guy snorting cocaine, mm. uh, you know, you know, you, you're, I mean, it's obviously what he's doing, you know, I mean, it's it's right there, and 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 then she says that about not dressing like a pimp, and that means like, wow, this is <laughs> this is pretty heady stuff for a newsstand comic in 1987. This is this is where your comics code went out the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did you think of Batman's terrorizing of Skeevers? Oh, um, that's great. <laughs> yeah. You can never escape me. Bullets don't harm me. Nothing harms me. But I know pain. I know pain. Sometimes I share it with someone like you. Fade to black. Yeah, and the panel breakdown is fantastic because it's just yeah. these close-up shots of of Skeever's face, and then his hand is Batman. Like just like pinches a nerve in his wrist and makes him drop the gun, and yep. then Batman's hand closing in over his eyes, and then it goes to black. You know, it's another Mazzuchelli masterpiece. In the the previous page, the look on his face when the lawyer calls back to him and says, "I'm fine," and he's got his, his <laughs> eyes are like huge, and Batman's got this. You know, Batman's weights on top of him. He's got his hand around his throat. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, that these guys have done, I mean, and Batman, you know, what kills me is Batman looks like a guy in a costume. He doesn't look like some demonic, you know, with a cape that's 500 miles long and giant shoulder points sticking out. And, you know, he looks like a man in a costume and they convey that he is terrifying, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they pull it off. I mean, it's not, you know. It really does show you that the Batman visual and the concept actually work no matter what art form you're or what art style you're putting it in. <laughs> uh, on page seven, when Loeb shows Gordon the pictures of, of uh, him and Sarah kissing in the trade paperback, the second to last panel, Gordon's mm-hmm. eyes are really like pink and bloodshot. Is, yeah. that, is that how they appear on the original floppy? No, and I put that in my notes. I prefer the coloring and uh, this on this page, especially from in the original. Yeah. Uh, the, his eyes are white. I mean, he's you know he's got a little. There's a little subtle gray kind of shadowy wrinkles. You know, uh, I mean shadows around the, his forehead as his eyes grow wide. You know, and, yeah. and around his eyes, but it's white. Yeah, that's always bothered me. It's like is did Jim Gordon become a vampire? I mean, what the. <laughs> You know, I, I don't understand. I, I never have understood that, and it kind of takes you out of the moment, right there. That's, I mean, you know, Richmond Lewis's colors—they're fantastic. But I think she, I think she may have went overboard when right. she recolored that that one page, especially. I mean, I was kind of getting the sense that you know she was trying to, il- you know, illustrate like you know, literally color the fact that he's tired, he's weary, you know, he's probably not sleeping very well, and it's just that. But like, I look at it as. Is he high? Like, did he smoke before he went in to talk to the court, the commissioner? Right. I was like, hey, put your glasses back on. You look ridiculous. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just I wondered if that was in the the coloring in the original because it just it it does jump out so much. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's his eyes are white in the original. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's uh, it's interesting when when Bruce. Um, 
of course, he knows it's not really champagne, but he Bruce offers champagne to a pregnant woman. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, that's classy, Bruce. Yeah. Real classy. <laughs> yeah. Again, playing the game though, if he wants them to not like them or just like think that he's you know can possibly be Bruce Wayne, you know, playing the fool. That's sort of what he did in Batman Begins. So yeah, oh yeah, he's, he's the the rich, just rich, utter douchebag. I mean, yeah, I mean it's it's and he plays it to the hilt. I like Alfred tells him his performance uh, vaudevillian, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, which means it's really over the top. And he he's telling him he did a good job, but he's also kind of critiquing that he's like really broad and overboard, basically right. with it. <laughs> I do like that moment when it cuts back when right before Alfred says that Bruce is staring out the window watching the Gordon. And he can't have any idea that they're they're fighting that Gordon is telling they're revealing that he's been cheating on his wife or whatever. But the the fact that they are having that conversation, like that, okay, the lead guy investigating your secret life as Batman comes to your house. You talk to him. He leaves with his wife. You think you've gotten away with it, but then they just sit in the car outside for ten minutes. Like that has got to be driving you crazy. Yeah. Like I like I can't imagine like Bruce was actually just like standing there calm. I mean, I guess because he's Batman, he's used to that type of thing. But I would have just been like pacing back and forth. Like, why are you still there? Just like waiting for a whole SWAT team to be summoned and like come down on it. But you know, Batman nowadays would have shot like a listening device, like a bug, <laughs> yeah, through some kind of gun at the car, and then had like an earpiece in listening to what they were saying or something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> or he would had you know the whole the whole grounds of wayne manor all 100 acres or whatever it is like uh mic'd in case yeah. somebody was out so he could listen to everything anybody said you know yeah uh, surveillance um, cameras and microphones all over the grounds yep yeah i mean think about this gordon you know according to you know what version you're talking about you know wayne manor is pretty far outside of gotham if you go by the old tv show it's 14 miles mm-hmm. so he tells his wife that I've been cheating on you, his pregnant wife. Yeah. That is one hell of an uncomfortable car ride back home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my God. You know, well, I mean, it, I was going to say, she's not going to storm out. She's not going to open the door and walk home. <laughs> so, well, that's true. I mean, you know, it's a wonder she didn't like, you know, go back into Wayne Manor. I need to call a cab. Yeah. <laughs> and who would blame her? You know, exactly. Have your butler drive me home in a town car. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, man, the poor, again, again, I just, I feel so sorry for Barbara Gordon in this, <laughs> in this series now that I, that I think about it. It's yeah. just, and I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't hate Jim Gordon because I, you know, because his other attributes, you know, make me still respect him and like him as a character, but it's just, oh, it's, it's so harsh. It's Dra- just awful. Yeah. Dragged to the city that's hell on earth. With yeah. a, a husband who every time he leaves the house could die, like yeah. just and and to find out that while she's carrying his child in like the most difficult part of pregnancy, he's been seeing somebody else. He's fallen in love with somebody else. That's, whew, yeah, yeah. And uh, which again, I I like her all the more for the very end of this story, and and we'll talk about that. But um, two other things in this on on the same page on page nine, uh, we get another reference to Superman, an allusion to mm-hmm. Superman. Um, mm-hmm. when Alfred says, "I suppose you'll take up flying next, like that fellow in Metropolis," and Bruce has kind of this cagey smile. Again, it's never like Batman who talks about Superman. They don't mention it. It's all of these sort of like, you know, in the second chapter when Barbara mentioned, you know, the Man of Steel or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and then the second panel, or the sorry, the last panel on that page, uh, when they're interrogating Flash, I was like, 
I'm assuming it's Harvey Dent in the chair. Yeah, looks you know, like okay, it. Yeah, I'm, I was just assuming that was Harvey Dent, but I thought you know, it could also be some random internal affairs cop. But it's, uh, yeah, I'm just assuming that it's supposed to be Dent. I wasn't sure if it was colored differently, if it was, like, definite, but, yeah. Yeah, it's all blue in the the original. Everything's in in blues, and then the the highlight's, like, in a light yellow from the light over top of the the table. Yeah, Yeah, I love that, you know, Flass says, that's if Skeevers is alive enough to testify. (laughs) And his lawyer's like, "Uh, my client didn't mean that. (laughs) Shut up, idiot. Yeah. And then naturally they do try and kill him off. They try and kill Skeevers, but what fascinates me is like whatever he's he's more afraid of Batman than of death because even after they try and kill him, he's like, nope, I'll still testify. But, and Dent's smiling about it, and yeah. Gordon's like, what are you smiling about, Dent? You know, and he says he's still willing to testify despite the fact that his lawyer quit. You know, and over you know him getting attempted murder on him. You know, it's and Dent's just got this little Mazzuchelli little line that shows he's smiling. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and he's all smug looking about it. And yeah, it's it's fantastic. And of course, the top panel on that page is when Barbara gets the phone call from, is it Loeb? I mean, she says, sir, yes, sir, I know about Sergeant Essen. Please don't bother me again. And you see Gordon in the background in the shadow. It's like, yeah. you know, you kind of wonder, did he directly call her and say, you know, your husband's been cheating on you, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, and he, he disarmed that bomb basically yeah. by telling her himself. So. Right. And probably, I mean, knowing Gore, he probably told her that the reason he was telling her was that because the because Lowe was had leverage over him that he they was using this to because Gordon did not want to pursue the who is Batman question. He did not want to do that investigation until Loeb started blackmailing him. He's like, "We'll tell your wife if you don't do this." So Gordon went after his one lead, which was Bruce Wayne, and felt so disgusted by that that he's like, "I can't do this. I can't pursue Loeb's agenda." So he he removed the blackmail angle, even though it could have ended his marriage yeah i love mazzuchelli's picture of gordon in the waiting room uh, <laughs> i mean he looks like hell he hasn't shaved in like two or three days and and he's you know putting out a cigarette i mean he just he looks I, he, he looks like you know you you do you'll you'll find out <laughs> of course not if you can go in there with them you don't have to wait out in the waiting room but you know it's it's no I, it's still you I, know i told angie that i will be waiting outside I'll, I'll wait outside and smoke while she's you know going through the worst part <laughs> You kick. I'm kicking it old school. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell the nursing staff. Just let me know when her bags are packed and she's ready to go. I'll drive her home. <laughs> yeah. Did I set up the DVR to record that? Well, I got to go home and set up the DVR. I'll be back. You know. <laughs> uh, then we get Selena and how? How do you feel about the whole Catwoman part of this chapter? You know, we talked about this before, and in this one, it's even kind of more – it kind of hits me over the head more. You know, was Catwoman even necessary in this story? It's not – I mean, not that I don't dislike it, and of course, you know, I like Catwoman. Right. uh, But as a character – but it does feel like this is like this is his one Miller's one concession to the other aspects of the Batman legend until you get to the very end and you mention the Joker, you know. Right, right. But it's like, yeah, you know, I, 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 I mean, yeah, I just, I just don't know if it was necessary. It's still, it's still well done. It's still enjoyable. But at the same time, it does kind of stop you. You're you're following Gordon. I mean, right. and this is all narrated by Gordon in this issue. So it interrupts, you know, Gordon's story. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's like it's not even the B plot. It's like the 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 G plot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it's like, uh, you know, I don't I don't. I mean, when you cut back, really, when you cut back to Bruce and Alfred, 
in this issue, that's the B plot, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and so this is like not even really on the radar of, of plots <laughs> really, but yet it comes in and takes up several pages here and there. Yeah. And as a toy collector, I got to say, oh, my God, she's just ripping heads <laughs> off things. And I mean, you know, I know eBay's not around yet, honey, but damn, you know. <laughs> well, that was the one thing I was like, I guess I was like, OK, she's a novice cat burglar. She's not used to this. But I was like, really, you don't have a fence lined up for this. You're stealing stuff and you don't know how to get rid of it. Really? And why did she steal it if she walked in and saw, oh, shit, all he's got is a bunch of toys. Why yeah. do I want this? Why don't you just walk out? Exactly, you know? yeah. So, <laughs> you know, rather than take it. You know? <laughs> um, it's well done. It looks great the way Madison Shelley draws it. The dialogue, the interaction, the writing is fine. It felt like a distraction, and I just came away thinking, I was like, you know what? We could have had one, maybe two offhand allusions to Selena Kyle in the story, but we really didn't need her in the story. She is more of a distraction. And if he just taken her out completely, we wouldn't have had the controversy that we've been dogged with over the last three months. <laughs> yes, true. So, <laughs> getting out to the, the moment when the, the seeds that are planted in the story that wouldn't come to fruition for 20 years, really. The Roman talking to his nephew, Johnny. The first, he compares him to Herodias defending the bridge. This is an ancient Roman myth. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is something that Frank Miller obviously loves because he keeps returning to these types of stories where the, the city is about to be invaded and one or a few people just defend it on this narrow strip of land. In this case, he's defending it on a bridge, so the forces are just collapsing it's very much the same type of story of the Spartan army at the Hot Gates, which Frank Miller first alluded to in the Sin City story, The Big Fat Kill, mm-hmm. uh, where where Dwight sets up the, the final confrontation and actually references that story. And then Frank Miller would tell the entire story in 300. But obviously, he loves these ancient myths, and he particularly loves these stories where the good guy is outnumbered, but he chooses a tactical location to cut down on the bad guy's numbers to make it more even up. So this is something that Miller has always loved because he keeps on putting these type of illusions into his stories. So, and it's fine. It kind of works. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah it, and, 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 you know, the, the, and the Romans, you know, the, the top of his a building is, is like a, the Coliseum. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's, I mean, I mean like the, uh, the Parthenon or something. Yep, I mean, yep. it's, it's a Roman building, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> He's got a pool house that looks like it should be in ancient Rome, you know, exactly. <laughs> with the with, with the skylight. So right. uh, it's kind of neat. Uh, before we, you know, uh, uh, jumping back a bit, I thought it was interesting. You know, we get the little news clip about Wayne Chemicals developing the the lightweight plastics, and then we see Batman on his glider. To me, I wonder if David Goyer and Christopher Nolan didn't take this small little panel and basically build the whole element of the Dark Knight series with Lucius Fox. I mean, because that's never really been a thing before. I mean, Lucius Fox helped run the company, but he wasn't like in the R&D department and all that that he was in the the movies. And, you know, they, I mean, they made a good chunk of Batman Begins be about how Bruce Wayne used his companies, you know, the, the the products they were making and some of the stuff that they had developed but never sold right. to gear Batman, you know. And maybe they've touched on that before, but and and I know there was a I think it was the zero issue 
of Detective Comics when Zero Hour came out, Chuck Dixon kind of went in that direction and said, like the first Batmobile was a was a military vehicle that had been on the books but never done anything with, and he kind of yeah. So that's but but uh, that seed is planted here. Yep. And not much is done with it until really Dixon and then later Nolan and Goyer and those guys run with it. Yeah. And it kind of like it, it's an interesting question of is the company working on these and Bruce Wayne figures out a way of repurposing it for Batman? Or does he come up with the idea of what he needs, then figures out a way of making the company research and develop something like that, that he can then reverse engineer for Batman? Right, yeah. A little bit of both, probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, as I was mentioning, this brief little encounter with the Roman and everything, this will set up the long Halloween and Dark Victory and Catwoman when in Rome. All of these stories that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale did together. The scratches on the Roman's cheek. Uh, the the little interaction between the Roman and his nephew. Yeah, those guys would get a lot of material out of, out of these couple pages uh, right here going uh, going forth in the future. Well, and I guess they probably looked at this and wondered, well, why did she want to scratch up the Roman so bad? And then later on, they reveal something that, in case you haven't read those stories, I won't tell you. But, you know, they yeah, it, you're talking about uh, we, both Nolan and Loeb and Sale got a lot of mileage out of these few pages right through here. <laughs> Can we get to my least favorite part in the story? Sure. It is the scene right after that when Batman or Bruce Wayne is at its early morning hours. The sun is barely coming up. He's doing one-armed push-ups, uh, listening to his audio, trying to figure out what their plan is, what the Roman brought Johnny in to do. Alfred is reading the paper, basically calling Bruce, not subtly at all, calling him crazy, telling him what, yeah. his, what his mission and everything is. I don't like these scenes. Um, I or this scene. I think Alfred comes across as unsympathetic. Just kind of like they—they they both come across as assholes. I think I, I don't like either one of them. <laughs> Bruce is very dismissive. He's a dick to Alfred, and Alfred is just completely not understanding. It's like at this point, Bruce has been doing this for almost a year. If you don't approve of this, if you think he's being crazy and he's going to die, the time for this conversation was a long time ago. And this is kind of. A limitation of this story is something that I think Ward Hill Terry brought up in the feedback section a couple of episodes ago, which is that we don't get Bruce Wayne year one. We don't see really who he is. All the times, even when he's not in costume, he's acting like Batman. We don't like you know we don't really get a sense of him and Alfred and their work other than just Alfred just does whatever he needs, but we don't get a sense of their their closeness, their friendship, their familiarity. That's something that will need to be developed later on or elsewhere. And because we don't get those scenes of them being friendly and and having that kind of jocular, you know, Alfred can tease Bruce. Alfred can kind of point out he, he's kind of the jester and that he's the only one who can make fun of the king. But we don't see any other moments of that. So because that's that's not the story that they're telling. So when we get this one scene of it, it felt really jarring. And it felt like I was like, wow, I don't like either of them in the scene. I think they're both being stupid to each other. Hmm. Um, I, I, I didn't read it that way, but I, I can see it now that you say it. I kind of, I kind of just read it as that you know Alfred's constantly you know he supports what he does because he says kind of shall I go fetch your tights right you know when he's walking out he supports him but at the same time he's he's still going to criticize him at every every moment he can because he he does try to you know remind him that how crazy this all is and I you think know. that's how I used to read it. 
but I think I was bringing my understanding of what their relationship was and projecting their past history onto the story. But mm. just based on these four, if you're reading this in isolation, I don't get that except in this mm-hmm. one scene, and it just feels like it it stands out. So I'm not, yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't like that moment. I didn't like that scene. I, I didn't like the way Alfred was treating Bruce and Bruce's reaction to it. Just very dismissive. But anyway. Yeah, I can I can see that. I mean, I, in isolation, if you haven't read any, if you hand this book to somebody who's only got the very vaguest notion of what Batman is, then yeah, they they be they would be kind of they wouldn't really know what to make of this relationship between Bruce and Alfred. Yeah. Now, having said all of that, what I do like about that scene is again we're thinking we're seeing Bruce use his brain, and we're seeing mm-hmm. Batman think like tactically. Because he was surveilling Johnny. He was about to find out what Johnny's mission was. What was he going to do? Catwoman screwed all of this up. And he leaves without even looking at Catwoman or without confronting Catwoman directly. He just says, you wasted my time and leaves in a huff. And where he goes, he goes home and he's like, all right, how do I make the best of this situation? I've got to think like a detective. What was Johnny brought here to do? He says they can't have any bad publicity, so he's not going to kill Gordon or anybody else. It can't be that high profile. What are the other options? Blackmail, kidnapping. And that's how he figures mm. out what's going on. So we still see him being, you know, using deduction and acting like a detective. I like that we're seeing Bruce think and use his brain. This is good. I just don't – basically, if Alfred hadn't been in the scene, I would have liked it better, I guess. That's what, the, that's what it comes yeah. down to. Yeah, of course, the never during the day bit is, yeah. you know, straight – again, Nolan, the Dark Knight. I mean, Bruce on a motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to – there's a copy of, of Batman Year One and I'm the long Halloween and in, in Nolan's office somewhere that's like full of notes, you know, <laughs> like post-it notes and <laughs> – yeah. Which not that's not a bad thing. I'm not complaining. I just I, you know it's. But I mean you know when he even said that in the movie, I was like, oh, I know where this is. I know what this is from. You know. It's <laughs> and then we get to our climax. And if they were subtly like hinting that you know Lobo was corrupt or anything like at this point, no, he is active. He calls to get Gordon away from home so that his family can be kidnapped. Yeah, Lobo has to be taken down. I like Gordon's reasoning where he's he's got his gun and we know what a good shot Gordon is. That he's just like if I he's like I can't let them go. If if I watch them, if I freeze and watch them drive away, I'll never see them again alive. So he just he goes with his instinct and he shoots the guy holding Barbara and he, he compliments her. He's like, Good Barbara, stay low when she drops to the ground afterwards. This is the opposite of what we saw when he was dealing with the mental patient. Right. Um, right. a few issues back where Gordon he could have just shot the guy. And, you know, but he he decided to, you know, that wasn't the way to do it. He was afraid the kids would get hurt. And here he doesn't have that luxury. He's got to take them out. And he again, it calls to the fact that Gordon is just this this supreme badass, you know, really in this story, because he even says caught one in the shoulder, throws my aim off just for a second. You know, (laughs) dude just got shot in the shoulder, you know, it's but he's he's he is a hell of a super cop in this story, you know. And it gives you Bar- and Barbara smart enough to get down, you know. And uh, again, you it's like this poor again. I keep saying that this poor woman. You know, just, <laughs> my God, yes. now her baby and her are getting kidnapped at gunpoint, and are you know involved in this gun battle with her husband. Jeez. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> and she what she gave birth three weeks ago. <laughs> now, yeah. <laughs> now this. Oh yeah. Again, like it's it's never really occurred to me until reading it this time. But when Bruce takes the helmet off. And, you know, they play it cute and they keep his face in shadows, 
but I know for a fact that she recognized him, and she just watches him run. Yeah, um, it's the only thing that really then, makes yeah. sense. And then he steals some guy's 10-speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the guy's – the look on the guy's yeah. face – is just you know it's it's he's literally his face consists of four lines. <laughs> yeah. I mean there's there's two dots for his eyes. There's his eyebrows and his nose and then his mouth. But he looks you can just hear hey yeah, you know exactly. I mean it's just coming out of that guy's <laughs> so awesome <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and then I mean the fight you know with Johnny with the Roman's yep. nephew you know when he knocks Gordon's glasses off I mean he hits. Looks like he hits Gordon in the crotch with the door and stands him up against the the trestle of the the bridge. Yeah, the support. And uh, you know this this comic really hasn't had any sound effects a whole lot. I mean, it's got some. It's got the womp. It's got a few yeah. here and there. But the panel in the original when the you know the baby when James Jr. drops and you see Bruce's hands uh, as he's diving down. In both versions, Lewis colored that whole panel where Jim's going no red, and I mean yeah. no is just this. It's like a sound effect. It's yeah. not a word wound. Yeah. It's and uh, and then the next scene where he's 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 got the baby in his hands, and then uh, Jim and the and Johnny are going over the bridge too. Yeah. You know. It feels very grounded. It's a crime story, but it's a great climax. Very much like when when we saw in at the end of chapter two when Batman leaps in front of the the car or, or leaps in front of the truck to save. It doesn't seem like it's a superheroic moment. It feels much more grounded, but it's also not a normal human moment. This isn't a Superman or a Green Lantern or just a, a like conventional, you know, brave and the bold Batman type of climactic moment. This is much more realistic. This is something you could do on a TV budget, you know, crime story type of thing. But it, it's this great moment where you see Bruce, aka Batman, doing something that nobody else could do, but in a way that doesn't feel inhuman. Yeah, it, it's really damn impressive. Yeah, it is, and 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 can I say that Mazzuchelli draws the most realistic baby ever when Bruce is handing the baby back to Gordon. <laughs> I mean, that looks like a newborn baby. I mean, there's you know, <laughs> we're assuming it's mud, it's caked in, but uh, it could go either way. Right. I mean, if you that were falling from a bridge, I mean, I'm pretty sure as an adult male, I would have needed a diaper. You know, I'm. <laughs> yeah. That's, my friends who have had newborn babies recently, they're all like, yeah, wait till you have to change the diaper where it's like exploded out of the diaper. It's coming oh, up its back. And oh, my God. Those are the worst. <laughs> oh, man. It just – and if they've had like a onesie on or something, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. oh, it's all up and down and on the inside and it's seeping through the – and then so, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> – oh, flashbacks. <laughs> Flash forwards in my case. Flash forwards, yes, for you. Uh, and then the second to last page, we get a quick recap or a very accelerated stuff of what's going on, like our epilogue, the the system being taken down. Gordon hasn't mentioned it's like, yeah, we got another Grogan as the new commissioner taking place below, and he's even worse. But you know, things are things are accelerating, and and <laughs> you wanted to know why in that or Mike Barr, Alan Davis story, <laughs> Gordon was captain. This is why. <laughs> this that's yes, exactly right here. So. They thought he just stayed captain for the next ten years, I guess, or something. I don't. I, guess, yeah. I mean, there was probably a note from O'Neill or somebody. Gordon's captain now, and he's like, "Okay, make him captain." And then it's like, "Oh no, he's commissioner in the present. He's captain." Yeah. And so, why the heck did you? you know, so, 
<laughs> oh boy, we're going to get the next episode of Nightcast. The two comics we've been talking about are going to converge basically yeah. in that issue. So it'll be interesting to, to to read through. But let me ask you this: on the in the original, the last few panels, you know, you showed Gordon on the roof, a long shot. Then you get closer, he's lighting his pipe, and then the last one, he's you know a close up and he's smiling. It's kind of an upshot. And he's lit, you know, pretty it's it's a pretty strong light that's shining on him. Do we think that the bat signal's off panel? <laughs> or not? <laughs> it, it certainly kind of feels like that. I mean we don't see it, but I think the very last page is meant to evoke that. There yeah, there's certainly some kind of light coming down on it, and it looks like he's lit from beneath, like he's standing up and the spotlight is there. So we don't specifically see it, but that was always kind of the impression I got. Well, in the, the original, this is the last page. It says end after the panel of Gordon with the pipe. Oh, yeah. And that image of Batman, you're talking about the image of yes. Batman jumping down in front of the bat signal? Yep. That is, I think that was the cover of Amazing Heroes that Mazzuccelli okay. drew, and they put it in the collection. Um, you know, Amazing Heroes, folks don't know, was a was a comic yep. magazine about comics. And, uh, yeah, they put they put it in the, the collection, and it actually looks like literally Batman's jumping down to meet Gordon in front of the bat signal. Yeah, I always, I always kind of thought of it as the, the epilogue, like the last sort of moment of the story, because it sort of fits. Gordon says he should be here any minute, and this is him sort of arriving, kind of bursting out of the, the skyline with the bat symbol there. Or, yeah, yeah I, I assumed it was either part of the story or it was a pinup in the original comic, but... Yeah. yeah, it's it's. I think it was the cover. If I remember right, it was the cover of Amazing Heroes, where they had an interview with with them about this mm. the the comic. So, mm. uh, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I kind of like to think it, even if it's not. That yeah, it's the bat signals <laughs> in my head, Cannon. And one thing I want to say before, and I've and I hate to kind of bring this up. I don't want it to be the final thing we talk about with this. But when we get to James Junior. There's this is a case where and I and I hate to bring this up like, like I said but there's that story the black mirror that Scott Snyder wrote. Yep. To, to me that story now taints any appearance of James Jr. we see here. I, I don't know. I mean can't some characters in comics just remain normal people? You know, I I, I, I don't I, I I just don't see the need to to go there. You know, it just it kind of and because this story is so grounded, it kind of sullies it for me. But that's a lot of people love it. I, I you know, but it just and it's well written. But it's just kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't go there. That's my that's my that's my take on it. <laughs> yeah, my my experience and my thoughts on James Jr. prior to that were always, you know, this story and then the graphic novel Night Cries, which is one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. Painted work by Scott Hampton, I think, was the artist who painted it. Uh, yeah. And Archie Goodwin wrote it, I think. And so, and so, yeah, it's it's a very different character. And, okay, The Black Mirror was a really well-told story, but again, it was one of those where it's like, is this a story that should have been told? It's tough to, to reconcile. But that that is just one question to bring up. The a whole other question, the fact that Gordon has a son in this, which was never an issue before. We always knew of his daughter, and the, the the DC universe is going to have to scramble pretty quickly after this to figure out what to do with the younger Barbara Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, they will retcon her story, and we will get to that at some point eventually. Yeah, this that that part. I mean, that was a hard pill for me to swallow in this. When you know, it's like you know, the whole time she's pregnant, and you think, okay, this is going to be Barbara. But the, wow, this Barbara's going to have to be really young. This Batman, how old is Batman in the modern comics? You know, exactly. And then, I mean, it, would... and then she's and she's it's a boy. You know, it's like what? Now she 
Gordon did have a brother, uh, have a son that was mentioned. I think his name was Tony. I think like back in the like late early Silver Age, late Golden Age. And at some point they brought him back in like Batgirl stories that Barbara had this brother that. And I think he like, ended up being like a like a government agent or something like that. It was I can't think off the top of my head, but I think he ends up getting killed. And it's like a Batgirl backup story in the seventies or something. Yeah. But but yeah, so there was a there was a Gordon son, but you know they also of course had Barbara, you know, and now Barbara's got to be the the niece that Jim adopts, and you know, and then there's the two Barbaras, which you know if they've not named after the mother, that's kind of weird, and you know it's I don't know, it just it it, it is kind of odd that that you know Batgirl, especially now that Batgirl is again an, an important character in the comics, it's it. it DC really, we've said that before, but DC really just wanted all those extra uh, hanger-on characters, as they thought of them at the time, just out of the way. Yeah. Supergirl, Batgirl, just get them out of the way. They're in the way. You know, that's the way they looked at them. And so there was basically no thought given to, well, what about Barbara? What about Batgirl? You know, in this story, he was just like, oh, we'll figure that out later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately... Batman Year One, this is a great story. I think this still holds up so many years later. Uh, It is an awesome story. It is a serious story, but it is not bereft of happiness and optimism, uh, Mm -hmm. which is something that I think modern DC and modern Warner Brothers has struggled with. It is not a superhero adventure tale. Uh, and, and we kind of came to terms with this and we, we've discussed this. This Batman doesn't really work in the greater Batman universe. Just tonally, they are so different. This is a different world. This is, this could be its own little separate universe if there was a multiverse. Um, because this isn't a superhero adventure. This is a crime epic with a costumed vigilante that happens to be in it. Uh, it is a cop story, which, like the movie Heat or the show Hill Street Blues, which is why I think in many ways, even though this is an origin story and Batman Begins was an origin story, I think this one is much more close to The Dark Knight in terms of tone and overall kind of like theme and presentation than it is Batman Begins. Batman Begins mm. still felt like a superhero movie to me. It followed yeah. that sort of normal origin story structure like a Spider-Man movie or anything else at that time. The Dark Knight was a different beast. That movie didn't feel like a superhero movie to me. It felt like a crime movie. Uh, And I think this story, Batman Year One, is a crime story that happens to have a cape and cowl in it. I think... Frank Miller did not break the toys when he was doing this. I, I, I think these are, he, he plays with them. He does different things with them, but you can still work with these. You can, you can accept these changes. DC tried to, they forced you. Catwoman, you know, that, that, that was a rough change that they, they still worked with. And certainly with everything with Batgirl that we'll have to deal with later on, but, uh, he still made Gordon better than ever. Uh, Mm -hmm. and he made a a version of Batman that showed a kind of soldier-like tactical thinking that we hadn't really seen presented this way. But, you know, we we still have those moments where this this isn't an uber-paranoid, a a spiteful Batman. This is somebody who believes in life and believes in saving lives and reaches out to Gordon because he needs this help, uh, and their their trust, their friendship is going to define them. So it's... This is still a good story with a good ending. 
Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, you know, even under the scrutiny of, of podcasting, I, I didn't feel like that this story, you know, I mean, it, it still holds up incredibly well. I mean, this might, you know, I mean, uh, this, you know, hyperbole be damned. This might be the one of the single best mainstream comic stories ever published by DC or Marvel. Uh, it, it's it's certainly one of the best to hand a newbie to convince them that comics are a legitimate art form and that they can entertain adults, you yes. know, yes. Uh, you know, and, and, and with, with with still keeping with some of the fantastical trappings, like a guy wears a cape and, you know, and all that stuff. But it is as it is as grounded as it can be and still feel, you know, like, I mean, still be a superhero. I mean, it's not really a superhero, but, but a story that features a character that is called a superhero. I mean, Batman, Batman still does stuff that most normal people can't like when he climbs up the outside of Skeever's building with just his fingers, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, there's things like that that are still like, wow, you know, now that's something would James Bond do that probably, you know? So that's, <laughs> again, it's that same kind of thing. It's that, that hyper realism that the hero can still do things that normal people can't really do, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yet it's still, pretty grounded and uh you know and as far as it fitting in with the dcu yeah it's it it, it, because it is so grounded because you know it it does feel like you said like a cop crime drama it doesn't quite you know you can't just jump into that with batman fighting like the man hatter like we just did uh in detective but at the same time you know you do get allusions to superman so miller's not saying that we're not in the dc universe it's just like yeah, uh, also, like, if you put it on the timeline, if this is meant to be the first appearance of Batman, Batman is like the second hero in the DC universe. So mm-hmm. you could just say this takes place before all of the wild and craziness of the DCU, before right. we have you know literal gods and monsters walking around. So right, and you know it's kind of like as the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has has slowly built. They've kind of you know at first they were trying to like when Thor when they did Thor, it's like well they're not really it's not really magic it's science and right. all this and now it's just kind of like oh well the hell with it it's all science <laughs> it's all magic and create you know that's it's it because audience have now accepted it they're like whatever sticks man you know we'll do it which i think is great they've just ran with it you know yeah uh but, but so it's kind of like that here you know it's like you know the, the universe evolved and things got crazier and, and then of course you can get into the whole bit of batman you know inspiring uh, you know, maybe maybe these people would have been criminals and and done awful things, but you know, Batman's very appearance gave them the the theatrical bent that they needed to create the characters they become. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and it, we see that with Catwoman for sure. You know, I mean, she's definitely inspired by Bat the way Batman dresses and everything to to put on a costume and go leap across roofs and things in this. So yeah, it, 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 this is just. Uh, Miller and Mazzuchelli, you know, I think they probably delivered something better than even DC could have ever, ever hoped for to restart Batman, basically, in this post-crisis era. And, of course, they didn't really know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, you know, we were still they, – they, they'll in, integrate elements of this into some of the comics as we go along. And like I said, the next issue of Detective we talk about, they try to literally integrate some of the elements from this into that series. But in a few years' time – some of these elements will start to take hold, especially like in the Legends of the Dark Knight series, because it's mostly set in this period, and they'll kind of run with that feeling a lot in that series. And sometimes they don't, but a lot of times it's within that year. It's kind of like in the year one little pocket universe over here to the side, you know? (laughs) 
I think you're right what you said before about this being the maybe the best like mainstream comic like in terms of accessibility you could give this to anybody somebody who's not a, a serious comic book reader uh, and it's very accessible it's very easy to to get into Watchmen and the Dark Knight Returns which are generally the two stories kind of hailed as like you know the best kind of like pop culture representations of graphic literature and what that can offer uh, I think those maybe have more literary merit in terms of sophistication of storytelling playing into themes uh, general like, areas of, of characterization things like that but they also require a certain understanding of the tropes of comic books and the superhero medium and the history of the right. superhero medium in comics to get all of what those books are presenting this one, very streamlined, very straightforward. You can give this to anybody, and they'll get it. They'll get the full story. Um, right. So it's not as complex as those stories, but it's every bit as good. Uh, it's it's just it's more accessible. It's just a, it's a quick read. It's lean. It's tight, uh, mm-hmm. and it's really really good. So yes, yeah. <laughs> if if you've never read it, Batman Year One gets the Nightcast seal of approval. <laughs> Yep, it gets two thumbs up and five stars and whatever you know. It's a it's a hundred percent fresh, you know. <laughs> oh, no. All right, folks, that uh, that does it for our talk about Batman Year One. We are going to take another promo break, but when we come back, we will have your listener feedback from the last couple episodes. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Batgirl Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Batgirl run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Batgirl Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Nightcast episode 13 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange at Dr. Ange70, Bat at Shapirek, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, D. Barrent, David Ace Gutierrez, Dylan A. Lang, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, J. David Weeder, James Hudson, Jim Bow, Martin Gray, Mike Bow, Pod Dylan, World Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Slang Word Resists, Superman Movie Minute, Ted Kilvington, Treasury Comics, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. If I left anybody off that list, and I'm pretty sure I left several people off that list, I apologize. Let me know, and I will give you a shout-out next time. 
Over on Facebook, new likes and shares came from Abadaba, Billy LaCase, Brad Dade, Brian Cray, Charlie Niemeyer, Chip Deese, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics, Daniel Doherty, David Foster, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, Greg Barr, Jeremy Gunter, Jerry Wiley, Jimmy McGlinchey, John Trumbull, Ken Holtzhauser, Leslie Trigg III, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Mike Gillis, Mike Peacock, Mike Zumo, Mike Nesmith, no, not him. Uh, Pat Sampson, Patrick Delmore, Rich Matsumoto, Rob Kelly, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, The Irredeemable Shag, Sean Strawbridge, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Terrence M. O'Neill, and Zoom Yukonori. Daniel Doherty said, You guys are not alone in pointing out the ridiculous leaps in logic Batman made with talking through their hats. On the Batcave podcast, the host John S. Drew coined the term Gotham City Logic to describe such far-fetched conclusions characters would make, C for Catwoman being one of the most famous examples. Yes, John, I have been on the Batcave podcast a couple times, and John, is he has, he, he has a handle on the Gotham City Logic for sure, and that is, that is what we're dealing with there because we are in that territory, yes, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Leyland, uh, co-host of the Overlook Dark Knight, even though Andy can't remember the name of the show, uh, said, <laughs> which you should listen to. It's fantastic, by the way. I did not know there were two Mad Hatters. Also, this was my favorite guest appearance on a podcast. Not only did I not have to do notes or edit, I didn't even have to show up. <laughs> Just making it easy for our friends. That's right. Yeah. Andy will never know if he showed up or not. He never listens to the podcasts he records. So, <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the website comments from last episode, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, but before we address the comments about last episode, we got three additional comments regarding year one, part three, that came in after we recorded the last one. So in case you were wondering why the last episode was about an hour and 35 minutes long instead of an hour and 45 minutes, it's because Diablo Frank had not yet put his two cents in. Frank said, I suspect this issue's story works better in the collection than an individual offering. It's the big set piece of the arc, and it's meant to flow right out of issue two and right into the build-up of the final chapter. As I'm reading the story for the first time with a month-plus gap between installments, I do find this one the weakest of the set. There's some nice character bits and welcome opportunity for Batman to display true heroism, but in isolation, it's bloated and nowhere near as engaging as the rest of the issues. It's only better than 95% of all comics ever published instead of 99%. (laughs) And Diablo Frank is only he can praising something with a weird backhanded compliment. Uh, I'm unwilling to sit in judgment of Jim Gordon, Frank goes on to say. This is a man putting his life on the line every day against crooks, politicians, and even his fellow officers to try to make the city just safe enough that his child can survive it. In that situation, working every long, miserable day next to an intelligent and achingly attractive woman, the smell of her perfume one of the few highlights of his current existence, Sarah Essen is the woman he's actually sharing his life with, not the platonic ideal of fidelity to the increasingly estranged woman he's legally bound to. At the same time, I won't judge Barbara Gordon for Jim's indiscretions either. Dragged pregnant to a strange, dirty, brutal city where her already compromised husband abandons her to pursue his obsessions, she doesn't deserve that. Nobody does. We, yeah, we, uh, we're all on the same page there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Frank says, something I just realized is that from the very beginning, Batman was a quasi-deputy of Jim Gordon, who mostly reinforced the status quo over his first 50 years. It was the Golden Age Superman who was forcing his way into the governor's bedroom to demand a reprieve for an innocent woman, or forcing a negligent mine owner into his own subterranean death trap, or illegally extraditing the highest officials of foreign governments to appear before the world court for crimes against humanity. In year one, drawn in a style reminiscent of Joe Schu- Batman completes his role reversal with Superman begun in The Dark Knight Returns to become the vigilante populist the Man of Steel started out as. It was Batman who had been the always-prepared Boy Scout, only to force that role onto Superman in one of the most highly visible and highly humiliating vehicles in comic book history. Hmm. Ah, that's that's actually pretty interesting. (laughs) And, you know, I can see where he's getting there. I mean, because... Oh, boy. Yeah, the Dark Knight, what it did to Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it it is true. I mean, like, it's one of those things that, you know, the Golden Age, he he was a populist. He was much more of a a blue-collar, you know, he wasn't the Boy Scout. He was rough. He was violent. He was... He was for the people, and yeah, yeah. As much as I like Man of Steel and the the era that kind of came out of that, it, he seemed to have lost that by then. And I, I'm not blaming the burn reinterpretation because it was certainly part of, I think, more of the the Silver Age where everybody was kind of like reset to sort of the status uh, of what they were. But yeah, very interesting. It does seem that Batman sort of subverted that more like local populist hero from Superman. Part of that might too be the – I mean Superman had already kind of – both of them had already become very much the you know the civil servant kind of character by then. But the <laughs> comics code pretty much forbade them to, to show any contempt or argument with uh, any kind of officials. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you know, as the comic code basically withered and died on the vine <laughs> in the 70s, Batman emerges as the guy that's going to you know – uh, question things and 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 work against a corrupt government. I mean, even you had guys like um, you know R- R- Rupert Thorne and Hamilton Hill before all the Miller stuff. But you know, Superman you know gets stuck in the mode of the Boy Scout, and right. and then you know, and so who looks cooler, you know, Batman or Superman? And then and we're still struggling with that today. I think this is I think a, a post Watergate kind of psychology had a lot to do with this too with Batman mm-hmm. seeming like the underdog the anti-authoritarian and Superman representing truth justice the American way being the symbol the patriot uh, and more of a, just a general populist you know distrust of the government kind of maybe helped facilitate his downfall with a lot of people mm-hmm. yeah. yeah Ward Hill Terry wrote in to say you praise Miller for having Batman abandon his utility belt I call shenanigans he still had various devices secreted on other parts of his costume Frank is right Bruce is the ultimate Boy Scout. His motto is be prepared. Blow pipe and poison tip darts and ultrasonic signal device and a wad of cash. On one hand, it makes sense, and I'd like to know if other writers added to it. For instance, lockpicking tools and special sleeves in his gloves. On the other hand, i like to see Batman be more resourceful. Maybe he had the darts, but had to use a piece of electrical conduit as a makeshift blowgun. In this fight, he wasn't going to be able to take the time to analyze the composition of the crumbling mortar or the building to create an explosive decoy or something. But I like when the hero uses an Adam Strange type of solution, or MacGyver solution if you prefer. You know what? I'm okay with that because, well, I don't know. I, we sort of danced around it last time, but I never really thought the blowgun accomplished much in that fight. Like, I would have been fine if he didn't have that blowgun with him, because the only thing he did was take out Brandon, who could have been taken out anyway. 
So yeah. I, I think I would have been fine if he just if he had none of those tools, if he just had the sonic thing that was hidden in his boot or, kind of separately, So which, which didn't give him an advantage in the fight. It only helped him escape. So, right. I mean, if he, I, I think, yeah, I would have, I would have been just as happy if he actually just used a pipe as the makeshift blowgun, and it was more of a kind of on the on the spot MacGyvering type of fixing this. I would have been fine with that, but again, limited number of pages, got to keep the story moving quickly. I was fine with it either way. Yeah, me, me too. I could, I could take it either way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ward goes on. The bat summoning thing looked great, truly awesome. Just a fantastic job by Mazzuchelli. But it felt like a Deus Ex Machina, a bat summoning device. Change the frequency just a few megahertz, and it's a shark repellent. <laughs> a bat summoning device. What Hawkman can do with his voice, what Aquaman can do with his mind, Batman can do with a machine that he keeps where? Holy desperation, Batman! Without our utility belts, we're helpless. Not entirely, Robin. Fortunately, I keep my bat bat attractor in my shorts. <laughs> 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 right next to my wad of large bills. The 10s and 20s are in the heels of my boot. Again, it looked great, but it felt like a trope of older stories where the hero develops or reveals a previously unknown power, skill, or weapon that is never referenced again. Uh, okay. I, uh, yeah, you know, If you got a problem with it, that's fine, but I still think it's cool as hell. <laughs> I, I do too, and... Again, with this being a sort of like retcon or reboot of the origin story, I kind of put it, the onus on Denny O'Neill and future writers for not bringing the the you know the bat summoner back. Like they could have mm-hmm. used that in, in later stories, and it could have been just a new aspect of Batman and his mythos. Um, I mean, this was Frank Miller. He he used it once. Nobody else ever used it again. I don't know if that's his fault, but uh. yeah. Uh, and then Siskoid left a very brief comment on that episode saying, yes, all the cat stuff is why I love this issue more than any other. And it's also interesting that this first Batman story includes Selina and not the usual standard, the Joker. But just a look through the gallery provides plenty of other reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, on to the comments we received from last episode in which we covered Detective Comics 573. Our first comment came from David Ace Gutierrez, who said, Maybe Jason Todd was predestined to be the most hospitalized Robin. Between his treatment in this first installment and the conclusion of the story, as well as his fate in Legends, which I totally forgot that he got his ass beaten in Legends too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the poor kid never stood a chance. He truly is the middle child, isn't he? Uh, and David says, I'll save my Jason postulations for the highly anticipated introduction of the post-crisis JT. I just hope Rob Kelly and his murderous conspirators are plagued at night by terrors for sending this wide-eyed child to his gruesome fate. To which Rob replied, I can't get the blood and ink off of my hands. <laughs> yeah, you know, we should have brought up the fact that just a few months before this, Jason was hospitalized. I mean, he was... You know, in the in the infamous scene in Legends that I don't think anybody likes where Batman leaves Robin to get mobbed by <laughs> a group of angry, you know, people and, you know, he gets perfume in his eyes and Gordon's like, you can't help him. You've got to leave now. And, you know, it's like, oh, what version of Batman wouldn't just leap into that crowd and get Robin out of there? You know, so. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's so. Yeah, I, I forgot. And we, of course, we both t- talked about Legends with Michael Bailey on his views from the long podcast we talked about that way back on early episodes of this podcast so go check out those episodes where we cover some of those chapters of legends separately but uh yeah we, you can hear our thoughts on oh man leaving jason there with ah <laughs> yeah wow uh. 
But yeah, uh, then to, Rob, to, oh, oh, sorry, to, to David's point, yes, there is certainly a long track record of Jason Todd being abused that precedes his eventual death that we'll get to. Like I said, in the very first where he was officially Robin in the, the pre-crisis era, he gets his butt handed to him by Crazy Quilt and left in an alleyway. So, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it's oh, he got off on the wrong, you know, pixie boot right there. I just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, then Rob, uh, Rob, the aforementioned Rob Kelly said, this issue makes me sad knowing it's basically the last true classic of the run where Batman and Robin are facing a villain and trying to stop their caper. I'm not sure why Chris's co-host, Crotchy McGrumpy Pants, <laughs> found so many things wrong with it, but to each his own. <laughs> How did Bruce even get that portrait of his parents into the house? Maybe he had Superman rip off the roof and they lowered it in. <laughs> David Wayne as the Mad Hatter was always one of my favorite TV series villains. I can see why the movies have stayed away from him, but I'm still sorry he's never been given the chance to tangle with a movie version of The Dark Knight. Um, I like Crotchy McGrumpy Pants. I'm going to put that on business cards. It's your new Twitter handle, Crotchy yeah, McGrumpy Pants. Yeah. Forget Count Druncula. I've got a new nickname. <laughs> <laughs> um, as to the question, you know, how, how he got that giant painting, I'm assuming he commissioned somebody, like, they built the frame, they built, like, they brought the canvas in, and the artist painted it there in the house. Mm. You know, like, the, the guys who built the pyramid, he was, he was never allowed to leave until the portrait was done. Like, he had to, like, live there, like, they didn't feed him. Uh, it was this grueling <laughs> condition. And when he was done, they brought him down to the Batcave and pushed him off a ledge. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the story that I choose to believe. <laughs> they pushed him into the over the same ledge. They pushed all the movers that brought in the giant penny, the giant dinosaur, <laughs> all that stuff into the back cave. <laughs> exactly. They were buried under their work like the people who built the Great Wall and the pyramids. They just left there to die with their creations <laughs> so they couldn't share the secrets. <laughs> um, Martin Gray, our buddy from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, he said this was a fun story and I don't care too much about which Mad Hatter shows up so long as it isn't the modern pervy version I wish today's comic writers would work out their kinks at home rather than on the page I do like it best when Tweedledum and Tweedledee are on hand uh, he then said, those pages look fantastic, that painting of the Waynes is so big, as you say, and boy, does Martha have that Alan Davis hair. From his days <laughs> from his days in Captain Britain to today, he's stuck with the massive lady locks. I wonder if he was at art college one night, struggling over a page, and someone smashed the window with a can of volumizer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why well, isn't Alan Davis drawing a Starfire series, you know, with the... <laughs> The old George Perez, you know, giant hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Siskoid, <laughs> uh, in an effort to troll us, said, I know this is pushing my Batman and the Outsiders agenda, but are we just about ready to say the only reason this detective run is good is Alan Davis? <laughs> this was a question that we both leapt at on the on the comments section, because usually, yeah. usually I don't respond to a lot of the comments. I just wait until we're actually doing these, and I'll, I'll give my responses on episode. Um, but, but I think I, I heard the question. I was like, "What? Are you crazy?" So I had to respond. Yeah. And of course, yeah. he was again. Like I said, he was just he was just playing his game. But I do think Alan Davis's work on the series is not to be diminished, and I do think it very much surpasses what Mike Barr contributed to it. And that's not a criticism of Mike Barr because I think his stories are fine; they're solid. I do have some problems with them, but they're the kind of nitpicky problems that you find when you are over-scrutinizing something for a podcast. The stories are mm -hmm. still really enjoyable. But the art 
far outdistances the stories. So I would say Alan Davis isn't the only reason these stories are any good, but they are the reason these stories are remembered today, because this is such a weird time in flux when, you know, like like we said last time, like these stories could have been published in 1983 or 1985, and they would just be considered pre-crisis Batman stories. They don't stand out like what's going on, what's going to be coming up post-crisis. Um, yeah. But Alan Davis's art just elevates it so much. So I think that's why people still love these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, said, One thing I like is how effortlessly Davis can show emotions with the characters. The Bruce as Playboy panels are great, showing just how over-the-top Wayne went with his performance. As for the Mad Hatter, may I recommend the Landry Walker, Keith Given, Bill Sienkiewicz one-shot during the Joker's Asylum 2 miniseries. It is absolutely chilling. It leans on the Batman the Animated Series version heavily, but is just fantastic and horrific. I reviewed it at length on my site. Uh, and Ange posted a link to his review of it that you can find. I know he also he commented on that story specifically on Twitter, and I think Landry Walker like replied or liked it or like thanked him for it. Uh, I th- oh, actually, cool. I, I think Landry Walker is really good about interacting with his fans on Twitter. So that's pretty cool. That's cool. I haven't read the story. I do know that it was it was dark, and Martin Gray like alluded to it earlier when he called it perfect. Like more recent in- versions of the Mad Hatter have leaned pretty ugly in terms of him being. I don't know if they've outright made him a pedophile, but they've danced around that area. And it's... I can't help it. Like, like if I was writing that, if I was going to write a Mad Hatter story, the ones that come to mind, the type of stories are... You know, they're not cutesy, they're not fun. They would be dark stories. They would be making him a child kidnapper or a child killer, or he would target women and dress them up like Alice. Uh, They would be, you know, dark, kind of ugly stories. Um, but I also, at the same time I was thinking about that, I had this thought that I think Mad Hatter would almost be a better Batgirl villain than Batman villain. Mm. Uh, and I know they, I think they've interacted a couple times, but I think with her being a young woman and the librarian angle of her sort of being caught up like that, I think Mad Hatter would be a good foil for her and a good b- part of her rogues gallery. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, you know, I think I think I mentioned this, but I think a lot of that Mad Hatter being kind of angling toward being pervy, mm-hmm. as Martin puts it, comes from Robin Year One because I think that's the first time I recall that where he's oh, like yeah. helping kidnap young girls and it's like a slave ring and you know it's like he's he is dressing them up as Alice and they, mm-hmm. you know it's it's mm-hmm, yeah it's like he's selling like yeah, giving them headphones that mind control them and stuff. Yeah, I think that's and it, of course these other writers have taken it and and just you know ran it you know with it to its to its probably natural but but maybe uns, unsavory and perhaps somewhat unwanted conclusion you know yeah uh, by, by a lot of people so yeah. Yeah. Uh, Darren Sutherland of the Rad Podcasting Network, uh, including Xenozoic Xenophiles, which we all try to say and pronounce, and I just stumbled through it as I said it this time. Uh, he said, really enjoyed all the talk about the Mad Hatter, who was always a favorite villain of mine. Thanks completely to the excellent performance by David Wayne, who I later loved seeing as Ellery Queen's father in that excellent but short-lived series. I also like the shout-out to Roddy McDowell's performance in the animated series. He made Bookworm another favorite villain of mine, thanks entirely to his performance in the 1960s TV series. I was actually disappointed as a kid to later learn that he wasn't a major villain in the comics. Yeah, I, I liked—I didn't get to say this on the show. I don't think I ever come out and said this, but 
David Wayne's Mad Hatter was actually my favorite non-Big Four villain on the TV show. Mm. And then Roddy McDowell's Bookworm was <laughs> up there with my favorite made-up for the TV show creations, you know, TV <laughs> show creation. Because he was so manic. He just went off, you know, like when his he, – he couldn't have an original thought. He yeah, had no yeah, – yeah. you know, and he just – he was like – just he he just explodes on his mall in that episode. It's like you're afraid he's like actually going to kill her. You know, it's like he's like one of the few Batman villains that you're like really kind of scared of on that show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would I would have to go back. I would have to go back and watch the entire series, which I haven't done in a long time. But I I still have a soft spot for Mister Freeze. All the versions of Mister Freeze, um, yeah, as as non Big Four villain, but. Ah, it's been so long. I, I don't know how their performances actually hold up over time, but uh, <laughs> that's a that's a project for the future. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Chuck Coletta did re- uh, respond to uh, Darren Sutherland's comment, mentioning that Bookworm actually appeared in the Gotham Academy series as the school librarian recently. So. Hmm. Uh, we also got a comment from Dial C for comment, who said, uh, and and he left a lengthier comment. I'm kind of paring down just for time. My first time seeing the Mad Hatter was the animated version, and I enjoyed his episodes, especially a certain one with dreams. I think that's the episode Perchance to Dream, which mm-hmm. the, fir- the first time I read Hamlet and I saw that line, that phrase actually in Hamlet, I was like, hey, that's from Batman. And I, I was in high school, and people were like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I was like, never mind, never mind. So. Dial C says, while I liked that version, I loved the 66 version, my favorite take on the character. Other than that, I feel the writers have a hard time with Mad Hatter as his motif. There's not really much to go with. There hasn't been a definite Hatter story yet, and I was not a fan of the pedophile angle they tried a couple years ago. I really enjoyed this issue. First, I love that these issues were attempts at doing 40s and the 66 show-style stories. Does it mesh well and work? No, but I really appreciate the attempt. It's a shame there hasn't been more attempts in that style. I mean, yeah, I mean, we certainly, we, we love what, when it tries to be kind of like serious takes on those stories. And sometimes it, it works really well. Sometimes eh, only sort of, but yeah. And our last comment at the time of this recording is from Paul Hicks. The Hatter history was fascinating, especially the story about stealing Batman's headgear. Is that the original battle for the cow? <laughs> <laughs> I well, guess it is. <laughs> I, I don't even know the story, but I know it's better than the actual Battle for the Cowl miniseries that came out after Batman <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, have, I, it, have I told you about that? Have I mentioned that on this show? Or the bat- I, I don't th- think so. Battle for the Cowl, that miniseries, might be my most hated story ever Like that I've read in comics. Oh, like, wow. It was a three-part miniseries. I only bought the first two, and the second issue I threw across the room when I was done. Like, yeah, I think you have mentioned that. Like, yeah. I, I wanted to burn my copies. I actually considered, like, what would it take? Like, am I, is it worth walking into the other room and getting, like, a grill lighter and burning this outside or something? But it's like, <laughs> ev- like everybody, like, I think Gordon gets shot in that. Like, Tim Drake gets shot. Damien gets stabbed. Like, all of it by Jason. And I'm like, you're, you're ruining Jason Todd forever. He's stabbing Batman's son. He's shooting Tim Drake. Like, you can never redeem this character no matter what. And they tried, and I'm like... Bullshit! Like, no, I'm not accepting this. And it was, oh, it's a bad story. I they did. had no idea what to do with Jason at first yeah. when they brought him back. I mean, they had some really crazy stuff going on with him, and in some stories, it just didn't seem like. I mean, like really crazy stuff going on that just didn't make absolutely made no sense. <laughs> and I know, I know, some people like the Red Hood and the Outlaws or whatever they're doing with him. I know some people basically, basically they have changed him so much that he's 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 a, he's a different character, but they like his complicated history, so they're having fun with who he is now. 
I I don't care about it. I think they should have left him dead. But it's I mm. the, under the Red Hood that that story where they brought him back was an interesting story. I think it's one of those stories that is best as a what if. But yeah, regardless. So uh, the animated that, movie's pretty good. It, but it that, is. Yeah, the, other than that, I'm kind of done with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's got some <laughs> it's got some great Joker moments in that animated movie too that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the Battle of the Cowl, yeah, I I like Tony Daniel as an artist. Not a fan of his Batman stories that he's written. Just mm. yeah. Anyway, that is it for the listener feedback section, and that is it for our coverage of Batman Year One for now, at least. We teased that at some point we were kind of talking about lumping this one in with a review of the animated movie um just schedules came out that neither of us have had a chance to watch that movie in a while we might come around to reviewing that again i don't i don't want to do a full review like i don't want to dedicate a whole episode to it like a commentary track right if i get a chance to watch it again and just offer my thoughts on that for a couple of minutes maybe that'll happen in the future if you guys listening if you care if you want to hear that let us know if if it really doesn't matter to you one way or another we might just dedicate our time to other things but uh yeah i i'm glad we've we've hit a major benchmark we have passed batman year one in the series and coming up in batman the next batman issue which will be in two episodes is the new batman adventures which takes a very drastic different uh course for sets a, a different course for batman in the future uh but yeah. before that before that Chris, what are we looking at for next episode? Next time, it's Detective Comics number 574, which tells us the new origin of Batman in that series. Basically, they're going to integrate some elements from this and also allude to what's coming up. They actually use enough editorial coordination that there's a mention of a comic that's not out yet in that <laughs> in that issue. So, uh, so join us then, and uh, we will uh, dive deep into the first true appearance of the post-crisis continuity in Detective Comics. All right, looking forward to that. Folks, you can find that episode in two weeks. Same Batman Nightcast time, same Batman Nightcast pod feed. (laughs) We're going to have to work on that, make that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're no William Dozier. (laughs) The hell you say. (laughs) Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.